My favorite thing to do when I'm commuting or waiting on a long line is hop onto June's journey and escape into a game filled with compelling stories, strong female characters, and a true crime mystery I want to help solve. The game lets you step into the role of June Parker as she tries to figure out who killed her sister. By playing the Hidden Object Mystery mobile game, you put your detective skills to the test. You find clues, play mind-teasing puzzles, and dive into the roaring 1920s. I'm on chapter four and still trying to figure out how these clues will help me crack the case of who did it and why, but I can't do it alone. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Wedded bliss turns into a dark mystery in Lucy Foley's The Guest List. The thrilling mystery is set on the coast of Ireland and it's my latest pick to listen to on Audible. The twists and turns do not disappoint. Listening to it felt addicting because I needed to know what happened next. The time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking audio titles, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers that are guaranteed to keep you on the edge of your seat. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. It is the home of storytelling after all. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash snapped or text snapped to 500-500. That's audible.com slash snapped or text snapped to 500-500. A body is found on an Indian reservation in eastern Montana. In a very remote rural area, it's hilly, there's sagebrush. Very rare that we would have a murder, but to have something this gruesome. It was just obvious something terrible had happened. The gory news will come as a brutal blow to a couple's long-awaited romance. Fell in love like head over heels. She just wanted a man who would take care of her. Her knight in shining armor. As detectives get to work, they find this fairy tale has a dark refrain. It was a beheading victim that was drug-related, had to do with the Mexican cartel. People would beat on him. There was really nothing that she could do about it. It's really stunning to hear about a person doing that to another human. April 14th, 2015, Bighorn County, Montana. In between the small reservation towns of Pryor and St. Xavier, a rancher is out walking his property with his dogs. A rancher was working on his property and his dogs were distracted by something which he went to go check out. The rancher sees what appears to be a pile of partially burnt brush. But what he finds comes as the shock of a lifetime. It was a torso with some of the limbs missing and decapitated. The torso was partially burned. Both legs were removed, roughly in the area of the femur, and one arm was removed. Most significantly, the head was cut off. The rancher immediately calls local law enforcement. As investigators gather at the scene, they know they have their work cut out for them. The remains were so decomposed that you could barely identify this was a human person. But when they take a closer look at the remains, there is one thing investigators can surmise. They were able to tell relatively quickly that it was more likely a male, probably middle-aged, 
This body was found in a very remote rural area. It's hilly, there's sagebrush, and the body specifically was found in a coulee or a canyon. There was obviously an effort here to hide this individual and to destroy evidence of a crime. Law enforcement tries not to jump to any conclusions, but when your body is burned and has other damage to it, someone's trying to get away with murder. The Crow Indian Reservation is remote and compared to nearby Billings, sparsely populated. Both the weather and the land can be harsh and the past as well as the present is steeped in culture and history. For 39-year-old Carrie Stansoverbull, the reservation is also home. Carrie grew up on the Crow Indian Reservation in the small towns of Crow Agency and Wyola, Montana. Carrie Stansoverbull was brought up in a poor area. As far as I know, she didn't come from a wealthy family. Although Carrie and family never had a lot growing up, they did have each other. And at least to Carrie, that was worth its weight in gold. They seem to be tight-knit and close. That was especially true of Carrie's relationship with her younger brothers, Patrick and Isaiah. Carrie and her brother Patrick were half-brother, half-sister, but they seemed to be very close, as well as Isaiah. When it came to love, the men Carrie dated didn't prove to be nearly as loyal or devoted as her brothers. Carrie Stansover Bull had been married in the past and she had had several children. She was currently single. Carrie got married, divorced, and then had these kids to raise by herself. By 2014, Carrie was a divorced single mother living in a rundown apartment off the reservation in nearby Billings. The apartments, unfortunately, are not especially nice places and subsidized housing. Predominantly a lower income housing complex. You have a lot of families that are in close proximity of each other. It is no area that we were unfamiliar with. The police have gone there numerous times, primarily for disturbances, family issues, looking for runaways, things like that. Carrie was poor. She didn't have much to offer or anything. She was on welfare, food stamps. She just wanted a man who would take care of her and her family. Unable to find a local man that fit the bill, in 2013, Carrie started looking for love online. Not long after, she was exchanging messages with a 37-year-old welder in New Mexico named Jeff Hewitt. Jeff was kind of a free spirit. He went all over the country, originally from California, where his hometown and family are. He went to college, and he was going for a medical assistant. And then he switched and went into welding. And he really enjoyed welding. He worked on some of the high rises in San Francisco. I never understood how he could do that because I'm scared of heights. But I was very proud of him that he was able to and he enjoyed it. He was married and he had three kids. He had Sean, Junior, and Jenna. He was a good dad, always there for them, took care of them. He was a great dad, he loved kids. Even though Jeff loved having a family, his marriage didn't last. He did move out of state for a while. He did move to Arizona, and then he did move to New Mexico. In New Mexico, Jeff didn't have a hard time finding work. Jobs were easy to come by for an experienced welder like himself. Finding love again was a different story. He wanted that 
true love, and he, he wounded his family. When Jeff met Carrie online, he appreciated that she, like him, already knew the ups and downs of parenthood. My brother didn't have a problem dating women that had children. I think he probably missed his own kids. After a few weeks of chatting online, Carrie was eager to meet Jeff in person. She always wanted to see him, and she just kept begging and begging, so he said, okay, he went to Billings, Montana. Jeff flew to Billings, where he and Carrie found that their online chemistry was even stronger in person. Love and affection is what all he ever wanted from a woman, a real woman to truly love him and accept him for who he was, and he thought he saw that in her. They were hitting it off. He loved her children. He was really happy that she had children, and they just got along really well. She just needed somebody, and she thought he would be the one. In the winter of 2014, Jeff left Billings with plans to return a few weeks later for good. When he returned, he moved in with Carrie and her kids in Carrie's Billings apartment. He loved her, took care of her. That's all he wanted to do. On top of loving and caring for Carrie and her children, Jeff could also provide for them. Jeffrey had a good skill. He could get a job anywhere. He was a great welder. And to her, he would be like her knight in shining armor. A few months after his move, Jeff reported to his family back in California that he could see himself settling down in Montana for the long run. And he believed he had found the perfect partner in Carrie's Stansover Bowl. He fell in love with her, like head over heels, and he wanted to marry her. He did really love it there. It was just very open. It was very beautiful in his eyes. Like, it was the perfect place for him to live, have a family. In late 2014, Jeff popped the question, and Carrie didn't hesitate. He told me that they were going to get married. He loved her children, loved the children. But as the couple's wedding day approached, a grisly discovery on a remote corner of the reservation would be the instant demise of their long-awaited happiness. The body was the torso of a male without a head and without legs. We didn't have a lot to go on at this point. We didn't know who this person was to know where they came from or how they got to this location. It could be drug-related, it could be a, a rageful crime, or it could just be somebody trying to conceal a body. Coming up, investigators make a dark connection to a previous crime. There was another case in Wyoming involving a beheading. And a clue at the scene could be the key to their victim's identity. A piece of a coupon mailer that apparently had been used as kindling. By 2015, Jeff Hewitt had moved in with Carrie Stansover Bull and her kids into her Billings, Montana apartment. But a dark pall would soon be cast over their happiness on April 14th, when detectives descend upon a man's burned and dismembered torso in nearby Horn County. For law enforcement, the case presents challenges from the start. A torso that has had all the potential identifiers removed, specifically the 
head and the hands and the legs, that's a very difficult point to start an investigation from. Starting out with those fact sets and so few leads, I, I think really was gonna be a difficult case. Detectives take a close look at the man's body, hopeful to glean some information about who he is and how he got here. The remains were in a bad condition. They'd obviously been there for quite a while. The legs were found away from the body. That was contributed to possibly uh, animals removing the legs from the body. If animals did remove the legs, is it possible they could have moved the head? When you get into the nature part of things, problems we run into are the animals that are out there, which tends to skew a crime scene if animals are eating off of a carcass. It certainly provides a challenge to uh, investigators to reconstruct exactly what may have happened. Unfortunately, the head is nowhere to be found. And even with the parts of the body they do have, investigators are unable to determine a cause of death. We didn't see any wounds to the body that were obviously occurring before he died, such as stab wounds or bullet wounds or any of the normal things that we look for. However, the absence of blood at the crime scene suggests the man didn't die here. The human body, when it's found at the scene where a person is killed, is tremendously important in terms of information and evidence for our investigators. And our investigators didn't have any of that here. This body was moved to a completely remote location. Between the lack of a crime scene, an unknown cause of death, and a missing head, investigators have their work cut out for them. And then, of course, you know, work backwards to find out what happened. Very, very difficult when that's all you start with. When law enforcement came upon the scene and found the partial remains of a human body, one of their first goals and tasks is to begin to identify not only what happened, but who is this person. In this case, some of the clues that they had included a partial tattoo. The body had a tattoo on its back across its shoulders. It was burned so that it couldn't be read completely, but some of the letters were written in script and it was E-W-I-T-T. -T. That appeared to the investigators to be part of a name. That afternoon, the torso and body parts are turned over to the medical examiner's office. Given the limited information that they had at that time, these would have been uh, the primary leads to go on. Uh, obviously, the tattoos specific to somebody it means something, and it would be a big lead in trying to identify that body. While they await the autopsy findings, investigators try to drum up some theories of their own. After they process the scene, photograph the human remains, and search the area to look for as much information and evidence as they could, they began following up on some of the leads. One possibility centers on a motive law enforcement officers in this area are all too familiar with. It's tough to figure out exactly what the motive might have been at this early stage. When law enforcement finds a body that's like that, you really have to keep your mind open to any options that could have happened to this person. There is a lot of drug-related crime, so we've had murders on the reservation. They've all been related to drugs. Methamphetamine is one of the biggest problems that we have in the area, and it's specifically problematic on reservation land. 
For investigators, this crime is eerily similar to another drug-related case. Initially, the thought was that we've seen this before. We've heard about this type of, of crime before where a headless torso had been found. That was down in Wyoming, and ultimately arrests were made determined to be drug-related. That was cartel-related, and we had suspicions wondering, could this also be drug or cartel or anything like that? Could a power struggle between rival gangs be the impetus for the crime? Certainly, if someone was looking to make a point, there was no better way. The crime was depraved and horrible and difficult to describe. To shear off someone's arms and legs and their head and to just scatter the body, that the disrespect for human life there is beyond gruesome. Investigators look into the prospect that the two cases might be related and pull missing persons reports from the past few years. It's there that they find another possibility. In 2013, a Native American man went missing from the reservation area. One of their initial theories was that the torso that they found in 2015 might belong to that same missing person from 2013. He was in his mid-20s. He had a wife and kid, very young baby boy. He went to go get some diapers for the baby boy in the middle of the night, driving a broken car in a blizzard. And eventually the blizzard got so hard and his car broke down, so he had to walk. A head was found sometime later, but no body. They were looking at that as a potential link that that might be this person's body. As investigators mull over these two cases, technicians still processing the scene where the body was found have come up with a lead of their own. One of the items found at the scene with the torso was a coupon mailer that had an address on it. The coupon mailer apparently had been used as some sort of kindling in an effort by the perpetrators to burn this body and to destroy evidence. Everything about that mailer seemed to burn except the address on it. And that address was at a residence approximately 28 miles from where the investigators found the body. After the investigators found the mailer, their immediate belief was this was used to start the fire by the people who received this mailer. Where else would they get it? So it was a big clue and it was a starting point. A few days later, on April 21st, 2015, investigators descend on the home with a search warrant. When they knock on the front door, they're greeted by a 39-year-old single mother. Carrie Stansilberbolt was currently staying where the mailer, the same address as the mailer. We're trying to identify who the victim is and then, of course, work back to any potential suspect and find out what happened. Coming up, in a state as big as Montana, investigators find no shortage of alluring leads. There were too many people present. At some point, someone was likely to talk. And the search warrant yields an important clue. Inside this leather wallet, there was the Montana identification card. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. 
You can do this when you Angie that. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Wondery, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Wondery to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash Wondery. April of 2015 brings more to Bighorn County, Montana than a long-awaited spring thaw. A torso had been found on uh, Indian Reservation. Some of the interesting things that the uh, investigators found at the scene were that the body was the torso of a male without a head and without legs. There was also a coupon mailer with an address. That address has led investigators to the home of 39-year-old single mother, Carrie Stansoverbull. So what is her connection to the crime? That's what investigators intend to ask her. But Carrie isn't alone. And upon serving that search warrant, they met with Patrick Stansoverbull and Carrie Stansoverbull. Patrick Stansoverbull is Carrie's brother. As Carrie and Patrick look on, investigators comb through the home. They find no indications that a crime was committed there, much less a gory dismemberment. But they do make one important discovery. One of the items that they discovered was a wallet. And inside this leather wallet, there was the Montana identification card of Jeffrey Hewitt. The name strikes a chord with investigators. Jeffrey Hewitt's last name was spelled H-E-W-I-T-T. This is very interesting because the tattoo across the back basically spells that without the H, which would have been burned off by being on fire. Combined with seeing the letters of the tattoo with the ID found in the wallet, the investigators had a very good idea on who the remains belonged to that were recovered. When investigators ask Carrie about Jeff, she tells them that she and Jeff had been in a loving relationship until recently. He had lived in Billings and that he was Carrie Stansover Bull's boyfriend. Carrie tells them that she and Jeff had once been engaged but the relationship had soured a few months earlier. Carrie's story to the FBI was that they had recently broken up and that he had moved back to California some weeks ago. Carrie seemed upset about it. Investigators passed Jeff's information on to the medical examiner's office. They soon confirm what they already suspect. The FBI did run Jeff's DNA and were able to get a positive identification in that manner. In addition to identifying their victim, the medical examiner is able to determine another important detail about Jeff's death. We were able to finally pin down somewhat of a time frame when Jeff had died, and we figured it would be the first four days of March. There are, however, questions that even the autopsy can't answer. 
we don't have a firm cause of death. It was really unfortunate that Jeff's body, what was done to it, it really made it nearly impossible to, to determine what happened. In fact, it was impossible to find out exactly what had happened to Jeff. While investigators know that's a question even Jeff's loved ones likely can't answer, they fly out to California to meet with Jeff's family. The police, or well, the FBI, came to my house, and they had said that something happened to my brother and that he had passed on. And that's all I was told. And after that, I kind of just blacked everything out, basically. Was in shock. I didn't realize that he went missing. I thought he was just busy with work because a lot of times Jeffrey would uh, take on extra shifts. He'd always be willing to work more hours. So I thought he was just working a lot and, you know, he was tired. So I didn't think anything different why he hadn't called me. According to his family, Jeff was a drinker, but he wasn't into drugs. There was no way he'd get mixed up with a drug cartel. As for any other enemies, that seems impossible too. My dad was a really sweet, kind guy. He was down to earth. He didn't really have enemies. He just had friends and no enemies after him. In fact, according to Jeff's family, they only knew of one source of tension in this friendly, free-spirited man's life in the past year, his girlfriend. One of the things that we learned is that Carrie and Jeff's relationship was somewhat volatile. According to Jeff's loved ones, that wasn't always the case. For most of 2014, Carrie was all Jeff talked about. He told me that they were going to get married, and he loved her children. That was his big concern, was the kids. He loved the kids. At least to family members, Jeff seemed happy. Then, in early 2015, he made a startling admission. He was kind of talking about maybe moving back here to California. Carrie took his money, and then she always bought him around. And my dad always, you know, went with it because no matter what, he would still love her and he would take care of her. The last time I talked to him, he says he was whispering to me. She would monitor the phone calls, and he says, Mom, it's bad here. And I go, it's bad a lot of places. But I didn't understand really what he meant. And nor do investigators quite yet. Carrie might have been a bad girlfriend, but did that make her a killer? When we examined Carrie's background, we didn't really see anything in there that would suggest that she was really that violent of a person. Even so, investigators are ready to have a more in-depth interview with Carrie. As soon as they touch ground back in Montana, they call her in. This time, Carrie is more forthcoming, especially when detectives press her about her breakup with Jeff. She claimed that he was abusive to her and her children. According to Carrie, the abuse had gone on for months. Then, in February of 2015, an incident involving one of her children was the breaking point. One of the things she had mentioned was that Jeff had kicked her small child in the head. Carrie says she then broke up with Jeff, and she and her kids moved from their apartment in Billings to her current home in Pryor, Montana. According to Carrie, for many of her family and friends, that wasn't enough. They were under the impression that he was beating on her and her children, and this made them mad. There was often alcohol involved in this, and it would cause these people to want to beat on Jeff. 
As an alleged abuser and outsider to the community, Carrie says it's possible that a group of her male friends might have beaten Jeff up. That it's possible, though, is all she can say. She didn't know what had happened to Jeffrey. She wasn't sure what these other males had done and said that she wasn't there. When investigators press her for more names, Carrie's vague. Carrie was a difficult person to obtain information from. She was evasive. She would stall for time when being asked questions. Could Carrie be covering for someone? You just don't know what's going on behind closed doors. Coming up, a family dynamic holds potential to break the case. His sister asked him for his help. And a witness gives her side of the story. There was really nothing that she could do. He eventually just succumbed to his injuries. It's been nearly a week since 38-year-old Jeffrey Hewitt's dismembered torso was discovered on a reservation ranch in Bighorn County, Montana. So far, the only lead investigators have is a strong hunch that the victim's girlfriend, 39-year-old Carrie Stansoverbull, knows more than she is saying. Carrie was a difficult person to interview. Uh, she never really would come completely clean. Carrie claims Jeff was abusive and that a number of people were angry about it. Any one of them could have gone after him. But with Carrie reluctant to give up names, investigators decide it's time to work another angle, her neighbors. On April 21st, 2015, police visit the apartment complex in Billings where Carrie and Jeff live together. The couple's neighbors confirm what Jeff's family had already told detectives. They spoke with neighbors and several other individuals. And the common theme that they seemed to be hearing from everyone they talked to was, at best, this was a volatile relationship. Usually, that volatility was sparked by the same catalyst. Alcohol seemed to be always present in and around this relationship. Neighbors tell investigators that Carrie's apartment played host to a near daily influx of people coming in and out, almost all of them inebriated. Everyone that was in this house that was an adult was drinking and was intoxicated frequently. During that time, Carrie would have multiple people over at her house. While neighbors say the volume of visitors made it too difficult to keep track of the names, one man seemed to be a near constant presence. Carrie Stansoverbull's brother. Patrick was an important person in this case. On April 21st, 2015, investigators track Patrick down and bring him in for questioning. Patrick had given them information that Carrie and Jeff's relationship was somewhat volatile. Uh, involved a great deal of drinking and fighting between the two of them. Patrick reveals something about the abuse that is news to detectives. There was talk of her actually beating on Jeff as well. Primarily, Carrie was looked at as more the aggressor in that relationship. But what about the incident where Jeff had allegedly kicked one of Carrie's children? If Patrick and his sister were as thick as others claimed, didn't that make him angry? maybe enough to kill. According to Patrick, 
That event might have been a misunderstanding. After a day of working, Jeffrey might have been fatigued and accidentally kicked a child, and Carrie, intoxicated, may have misperceived what took place. So this seemed to be actually something that turned out to be an accidental thing. But I think because of all the alcohol involved, I think that that really agitated her. Patrick tells detectives when she called him about a month ago in a panic, he thought she was once again drunk and being dramatic. But this time, things were different. His sister reached out to him and asked him for his help, told him that Jeffrey had passed away. She was panicking and needed to do something with the body. And with that information, Patrick agreed to go from Hardin, where he lived, to Billings with his car. Patrick tells police he didn't ask any questions. He just set about helping his sister, a woman he had been close with ever since their hard-scrabbled childhood days on the reservation. Patrick stands over bowl, came to Carrie's apartment. Jeff was stuffed into a chest of sorts, and Patrick carried the chest, placed it in the trunk of his car. The siblings called their younger brother Isaiah, who agreed to meet them. Together, they drove to Isaiah's home to gather tools, including an ax and a chainsaw. From there, they drove with Jeffrey's body in the trunk back out to a remote location. The chest was removed from the vehicle. It was rolled down into the coulee, where Patrick stands over bull, took a chainsaw, and began cutting off the legs. The chainsaw got bound up in the underwear, and he had to basically discard that, and then he finished dismembering the body with an ax. They used a chainsaw and ax. It was really stunning to hear about a person doing that to another human, especially someone that they were in a relationship with. Jeff's legs were placed on top of his body, and the body was set on fire, along with the chest that he was carried in. After watching Jeff's body burn for a few minutes, Patrick says he and his brother fled the scene. To authorities, Patrick's confession is startling for more than just the sheer brutality of his involvement. Why would he get himself involved in this and ultimately rope himself into a lengthy prison sentence? It was family. Carrie needed help. She asked for it. They began having concerns about whether this was the best course, but they did it anyway. Patrick had told the investigators that Carrie was the puppet master. He said that she told them what to do, and she dictated everything, and he just went along with what she said to do. After hearing Patrick's account, investigators bring 29-year-old Isaiah Stansoverbull in for questioning. He not only verifies everything Patrick told them, but he also tells police where they can find valuable evidence. Isaiah was actually instrumental in cooperating with detectives, telling them not only about some of the tools, such as the chainsaw and an ax that were used to mutilate Jeffrey's body. He actually led investigators to where those items were hidden. By all accounts, it appears as though Carrie wrapped the head in plastic and took it with her when they left the coulee. It was later found just west of the town of Pryor, near the landfill. Based on Isaiah's statement, detectives are able to locate the axe, the chainsaw, and finally, Jeff Hewitt's severed head. It was found some short distance away from Patrick Stan Soverbull's residence. We do know from the autopsy that he had a broken jaw. We didn't see any wounds to the body that were obviously occurring before he died, such as stab wounds or bullet wounds or any of the normal things that we look for. 
Investigators turn back to Carrie. Armed with the statements from her brothers, investigators press her to come clean about what happened to Jeff. This time, Carrie admits that she knows more than she first let on. She knows that Jeff was beat up, and she knows who started it. Carrie started this by reaching out to others to tell them that Jeffrey had hurt her or had hurt the kids or both, and that there were certain men who were happy to come to her help and assault him. At some point, Carrie invited over her friends and family, and they all began drinking and had this group attack that they carried out on the victim. According to Carrie, the attack took place in the middle of February. Following the beating, Carrie was satisfied that Jeff had learned his lesson. She claims she offered to get Jeff medical attention, but he refused. Carrie had made mention that Jeff didn't want her to get help for him because he had a warrant and he was scared of the police. So, Carrie says she left Jeff to recuperate in the couple's bedroom. Carrie tells detectives that a couple of weeks passed and she thought Jeff was on the mend. That is, until one day when she went in to check on him. She went to the bedroom where Jeff had been lying in bed. She asked him if he was doing all right because she was aware that he was injured and he didn't respond to her. She went and checked him out and discovered that he was actually dead. She followed that by telling the investigators that her response was to reach out and get help from Patrick, load Jeffrey's body into the trunk of a car, and take it somewhere and dispose of it. Detectives want names of the men who beat Jeff up. That's when Carrie draws a blank. She said she was so intoxicated that she didn't know. As investigators know, if Carrie encouraged the beating and left Jeff without medical care, that at least could make her criminally negligent for Jeff's death. It was important to us to hold her accountable as best we could. But not knowing how he died was a big obstacle in that. They weren't sure who did the beating and who really took his life. Coming up, investigators hone in on a ringleader. Cheerleading, it seemed to be almost a sport. And the details of Jeff's death reach a new level of horror. Couldn't feed himself was in his own feces. In the days and weeks following the discovery of 38-year-old Jeff Hewitt's body, investigators know his girlfriend, 39-year-old Carrie Stansoverbull, concealed Jeff's body from authorities, and that her brother, 34-year-old Patrick Stansoverbull, burned and dismembered Jeff's corpse. However, as the specific details of Jeff's death still remain in question, Investigators want more physical evidence before charging either sibling. We gained consent from the property manager. We then conducted a search of the apartment where Carrie and Jeff had stayed. When we went into Carrie and Jeff's apartment, we discovered that it was in the process of being remodeled. So the carpet had been torn out. It was really a mess. By the time Billings Police Detectives ended up in that apartment, there was very little physical evidence left. While it proves to be another challenge for the investigation, detectives press forward. For the next few months, investigators attempt to track down the individuals who attended Carrie's raucous parties around the time they think Jeff died. 
Many of the people that Carrie would hang around with and people that were at her apartment, alcohol always played a factor in it. There was always people reported to be drunk. At first, they find that many of Carrie's drinking buddies are unwilling to talk. But investigators persist. Eventually, it pays off and witnesses begin to crack. What we could determine was that Jeff was beaten by several people over the course of those weeks. And witnesses claim one woman always led the attack. Carrie stands over Bull. Jeff had been beaten several times by Carrie over the course of a month or so. Jeff had been the victim of numerous assaults over a fairly extended period. It was at minimum several days, probably more than a week, maybe as long as two weeks, that Jeffrey was in a situation where he was beaten. According to witnesses, in between beatings, Carrie encouraged her usually intoxicated friends to take a turn, baiting them with stories of how Jeff abused her and her children. They were kicking him and beating him and eventually left him just almost near death, laying on a mattress. He stayed there for multiple days without food, water, access to a bathroom, basically crippled. Carrie said things like, he deserves what he gets, and he deserves to suffer for what he has done. And those were extremely troubling. Carrie was cheerleading this. And I think when you put in the alcohol into the mix with all these people, it seemed to be almost a sport. He, at some point during the beatings, became unable to help himself anymore. And by that, I mean he couldn't move, he couldn't feed himself, he couldn't get out of bed. Jeffrey was in his own feces, in his own waste. If anyone tried to help Jeff, Carrie put a stop to it. There were comments made by various witnesses that they tried to give him something to drink or give him some pieces of ice or to help make him more comfortable in the bed. And when they tried, Carrie became enraged. He was utterly helpless, and that's a level of depravity that makes this case stand out and makes it troubling to this day for those of us who worked on it. Some people did express some regret about what had happened and some regret that they didn't call the police. A lot of people would blame alcohol for a reason why they did these things or why they failed to act on things is because they were just too intoxicated to, to even care, I guess. None of the witnesses investigators speak to say they were present when Jeff died. When it comes to what actually killed him, investigators are left to guess. The most that we could figure is that he was just beaten to the point that probably dehydration and a number of medical issues that were going on as a result of his injuries just unfortunately caused him to pass away. As far as Carrie's motive, Investigators believe that anger, combined with an alcohol abuse problem, proved a fatal combination. My impression of Carrie is that she was an extreme alcoholic and that she would act out emotionally when she was intoxicated to the point that she would do things that she may not do, thinking with a more clear head. Alcohol was absolutely a tremendous contributor to not only the violence that we see in this case, but the depravity that we see in this case. Carrie was highly intoxicated through most of this time frame, leading up to the homicide, leading up to Jeffrey's death. Either way, investigators finally have enough to make the move they have been waiting for. Once a warrant was issued for Carrie, the US Marshals arrested her from the reservation. We charged two primary offenses and four secondary offenses. So the first offense we charged was deliberate homicide, 
or in the alternative to deliberate homicide, negligent homicide. The idea was she either killed him or was responsible for killing him or knew that he was in the process of dying and did nothing to help him. Patrick Stanzelberball was also arrested. And it was my understanding, again, the US Marshals assisted in this. They basically convinced him that he should turn himself in, which he did do. Although investigators suspect Jeff was beaten by multiple people, at this time, they believe they only have the evidence to prosecute Carrie and Patrick Stanzoverbull. For Jeff's family, waiting for Carrie's arrest had been their own form of torture. When they arrested Carrie, I felt relief because it helps bring the family closure. It helped me bring closure. Less than six months later, on July 17, 2017, Jeff's family gets more news. I was informed that there was going to be a plea deal. She would be found guilty. What often breaks these cases, too many people talked. There were too many people that knew what Carrie did. There were too many people present over the many days that Jeffrey suffered. At some point, someone was likely to talk, and that's what happened here. On October 18th, 2017, Carrie is sentenced to 40 years in prison. We knew that a 40-year sentence to the Montana women's prison was going to be for the rest of her life in practical terms. And if she ever is released, our expectation is she'll be quite old when she is. While Carrie's stiff sentence is a fact, the question many people have is how, even under the influence of alcohol, could one woman so viciously turn on the man she once planned to marry? This was an attack on someone that she was supposed to love. She cut him up, she threw his body out in the reservation. It's so heinous that it's something that will stick with you forever. Carrie's barbaric. What she did to my father was the worst thing anything could do to a human being at all. Carrie was a puppet master and she just controlled everyone around, including my father and her brothers. January 19, 2018, Patrick Stanzover Bull was sentenced to 20 years and six months in prison for tampering with evidence and assault. Isaiah Stanzover Bull was never charged in relation to the murder of Jeff Hewitt. For more information on Snapped, go to oxygen.com. The wait is over. So far, you're not losing. The only thing you're losing is my patience. Quickly, I see that. Bing! The queen of the courtroom is back. I didn't do anything. You wouldn't know the truth if it came up and slapped you in the face. I see he's not intimidated by anything. I can fix that. New cases. She wanted to fight me. Leave her alone. OK, so um... not this is not a so. This is a period. Classic Judy. Did you sleep with her? Yes, Your Honor. You married his cousin. His brother. That's not him. Yes, ma'am. I would make a beeline for the door. The Emmy Award-winning series returns. How did I know that? I have a crystal ball in my head. It's an all-new season. It's streaming. You can say anything. <laughs> Judy Justice, only on Freebie.